News, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 19th. It's show number 35 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davich, your host, and we do have another great show for you. Of course, we'll be talking with Todd Zola, our Talk with Todd commentator, about why not to drool over Jose Fernandez, how to be aggressive in fab bidding, player scarcity, dead money, and more. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, which we like to say is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Kyle Schwarber, Pedro Strope, and others. And from the American League with Jock Thompson, looking at Byron Buxton, Francisco Lindor, and more. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at White Sox lefty Carlos Rodon, hosting Rangers righty Giovanni Gallardo. Atlanta righty Julio Tehran hosting the Mets right-hander Matt Harvey and other weekend matchups. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about how we need to stop looking for the big W. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The prospects are coming. The prospects are coming. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, it's our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. It looks like the prospect gold rush is on all over baseball, Nick, and the Cubs, who already had Chris Bryant, Addison Russell, and Jorge Soler contributing, have now called up catcher Kyle Schwarber. Uh, Jeremy Deloney looked at Schwarber in daily call-ups, and Tom Kephart analyzed Schwarber's playing time possibilities in playing time today. So what is the scoop on Kyle Schwarber, and should we be emptying our fab for him? Well, you know, Kyle Schwarber looks very, very good in the minors, and uh, the... There's no doubt that this guy can hit. He came up last night in his first game, went four for six, scored three runs, two RBIs, hit a triple, all the kind of things you would want to see out of a highly touted prospect uh, in his first game, and you go, wow. But the thing to remember about Kyle Schwarber, a couple of things. First of all, right now he's a man without a position. He came up as a catcher. The Cubs would kind of like to keep him there. Almost everyone agrees he's not going to be a catcher because he really doesn't have the tools to stay as a catcher, so probably will wind up in the outfield. Uh, hasn't played in the outfield a lot, so has some work to do there. So the reason Kyle Schwarber is up is the Cubs have an interleague series, a couple of them actually over the weekend, where they need a DH, and Kyle Schwarber is going to be the DH. Uh, it sounds as though there's absolutely no possibility that he'll remain on the roster after that time. His uh, offensively, he may be great. He could bat. Uh, he could continue doing four for six over the weekend, and my guess is they would still send him down to try to find a defensive position for him. So, no, I don't think I'd empty my fab for Kyle Schwarber at the moment. Uh, he may be up l- again later in the year, but uh, at this point, it's a long shot for him to get significant playing time during this season. 
I do remember, Nick, uh, Rob Gordon of BaseballHQ.com, of course, does the minor league minute here. And in one of his minor league minutes, he discussed Kyle Schwarber, and he made the same point you did, that the problem here is that he's not a good enough catcher to catch at the big league level, and that means he's got to switch somewhere. And when you look at the Cubs, there's not a lot of places he can switch to. They have Chris Bryant at third, which would be a, you know, a, a seemingly decent second spot for a catcher. They've got Anthony Rizzo at first, an even more likely spot, but he's not going to supplant either of those guys. And and then around the outfield, Chris Coughlin, Dexter Fowler, and Jorge Soler, who's injured. And now you get into a possibility for Kyle Schwarber. If Soler doesn't recover fully, then he's only got to compete with the likes of Denorfia and Lake and guys like that. I think they sent Lake down already, in fact. So there's some possibilities in the outfield. But then again, as you say, he hasn't played the outfield. So it's it's not a place, Major League Baseball is not a place where you want to learn how to play a new position on the fly. That's true. And at this point, the Cubs don't want to give up on him as a catcher. And, and certainly that's understandable. I mean, this is a guy with a good enough bat that if he can actually catch at the major league level is worth leaving there. But uh, I think almost oh, yeah. everyone agrees that's not going to happen. But uh, we're projecting, I think, uh, 36 more at-bats for Schwarber during the course of the year. Uh, so certainly not with someone to empty your fab to uh, to get hold of. Yeah, 36 more at-bats. It lo- looks like uh, Baseball HQ's projection for playing time is that they're not going to tr- entrust the catching role to him, although Montero's hurt and David Ross certainly isn't anybody's idea of a top-quality catcher. But uh, catcher's such an important defensive position, you can just bet that the Cubs, who have aspirations to make the playoffs this year, are not going to entrust that critical role to an untested rookie who lacks the skills. This is not Matt Wieters. Uh, Nick, Matt, Cedarholm's Market Pulse column at BaseballHQ.com looks at play- player value, and he's always got an eye towards possible arbitrage opportunities for owners, that is, situations where player value is out of line with the market. Among the players he mentioned this week in the National League, San Diego first baseman Yonder Alonso, and this is not a situation where Matt is really enthusiastic. No, it's not. I mean, Yonder Alonso was one of those guys that um, if you need batting average out of a corner infielder or a first baseman, Yonder Alonso will give it to you. He's hitting 317. He's at 291 over the last month. This is a guy that has a has a good hit tool. I mean, we're, we're looking at someone who makes good hard contact. He has a 0.9 batting eye and 86% contact rate. He walks a lot. Uh, a, a guy that, that can get on, that can hit and get on base. But what Yonder Alonso has never demonstrated is power, and that's simply not developed. He's 28 years old now. We're looking at a power index currently of 64, uh, an XPX of 79. Those things are well below what you want out of a first baseman, third baseman, corner infield uh, kind of situation. So uh, if you need batting average, Yonder Alonso could give you a boost, but that's about all he's going to give you at this point. And certainly without the power, he's not driving in many runs, 18 runs batted in and 142 at bats at this point. Well, BaseballHQ.com, Nick, is projecting Alonzo for a two seventy batting average, which is certainly a help in this day and age, and five stolen bases. So he's not completely useless, but I think if he is going to be of use to you, you need to be getting some power from an untraditional spot. Maybe you have Johnny Peralta with his 10 home runs or Wilmer Flores of the Mets with his 10 home runs, and that kind of offsets the fact that Alonzo's not going to be delivering corner infielder power. In fact, you know, the comparison that was made by Matt Cederholm in the Market Pulse was to Tampa Bay's James Loney. And Nick, I think that's a, a pretty decent comparison, actually. Yeah, I think it is. It's a very good comparison. This is the this is the National League version of James Loney, a little bit younger version of James Loney, but a guy who can who can hit in bunches. Uh, if you catch him on a hot streak, he may hit 350 during a particular week or two weeks or three weeks and, and, and help your batting average. But certainly a guy who's really around a 280 hitter, uh, and, and without any power, and uh, that's not going to help you a lot. 
uh, unless you really need the batting average. Matt Cederholm's Market Pulse column also suggested looking long and hard at Cubs right-hander Pedro Strope after Hector Rondon was pulled temporarily, the Cubs say, from the closer role. What do you think the interest here should be in Pedro Strope? Well, you, you've got to look at the guy, you know. I mean, we, we're, we're, uh, we're not sure exactly what the Cubs are doing in their bullpen. We don't know what Joe Madden's going to do. Uh, and I guess the answer to that is really who knows. Um, Pedro Strope struggled a little bit, not real badly. I mean, uh, Hector Rondon struggled a little bit, not real badly, and, and got pulled, and Strope got a couple of save opportunities. We hear that that's temporary. Pedro Strope is a guy who's got some good skills. Uh, 122 BPV at this point, 310 ERA, 0.83 whip. So uh, the skills are there. there there's uh, he's, he's closed a couple of games successfully, but also taken a loss while he's been out there as a closer. So he's not going to be a shutdown type of closer, but might, might wind up in the role. So if you're hurting for saves, certainly a guy who's worth a speculative pickup at this point if he's available in your league. It seems to me, Nick, and maybe you've had the same experience, it seems like we've been waiting for Pedro Strope since the 1950s to take a closer role somewhere, and on the rare occasions when he picks up the chance, he kind of fumbles it. Yeah, that's happened before with Pedro Strope. I mean, this is a guy with good skills, but, you know, we're we're not sure, I think, at this point whether he has the, uh, the mentality to handle the closer role, uh, and I think that's a good question. So, uh, uh, you know, who knows what he would do with it this time. And, and you've got to remember that Rondon is there. And uh, even if Pedro Strope gets the role for a couple of weeks and, and doesn't run with it very quickly, Rondon could be back in the role very uh, in short order. And the Cubs seem to be looking for other alternatives. While Rondon was in the doghouse, they also gave Jason Mott a save opportunity. He converted, uh, and they've signed Rafael Soriano to a minor league contract with a stipulation that he can opt out if they don't have him in the majors by the All-Star break. So they have some opportunities here. Of course, there's some potential problems with Soriano as well. So right now, I think all you can say about the Cubs' bullpen is that the situation is fluid. Uh, and uh, we won't know from uh, from night to night, day to day, uh, who's likely to be out there. We have bumped Pedro Strope in the BaseballHQ.com projections to five saves and nearly $10 in 5 by 5 value. Decent strikeout guy, 39 strikeouts to come in 35 projected innings, but only pedestrian decimals around a 3 ERA 110 whip. Finally, Nick, Ray Murphy's speculator column looked this week at downside risk among league leaders. And Ray identified two top National League pitchers, left-hander Cole Hamels of the Phillies and right-hander Johnny Cueto of the Reds. These are top-skilled guys having great years. What are Ray's concerns? Well, you know, Ray's concerns are that both of these guys are on the trade block, and it raises an interesting question. You, you've got guys who are, for the next uh, three weeks, two weeks, three weeks, a month, uh, going to have lots of rumors uh, swirling around them about... Uh, are they, are they going to be traded? Are they not going to be traded? Where will they be come the trade deadline? And so the question is, how does that affect a pitcher? Uh, and then after they move to a new team, they're likely to be, both of them uh, likely could easily wind up in better pitchers' parks than they're in now. But the question becomes, if they're traded to a contender and they become the guy who's going to save them and, uh, and take them and lead them into the World Series, how is that going to affect these particular pitchers? So, Certainly some questions, I think, surrounding both Cueto and Hamels at this point. Um, Cueto, over the last week, uh, uh, two kind of shaky starts, 5.11 ERA in his last two games. Uh, does that mean anything? Maybe not. Uh, but you've certainly got to wonder what, with, with guys who don't know where their home is going to be and know they're likely to wind up someone else, somewhere else, how that's going to affect them in the short term, and then wherever they wind up, how is that going to affect them in the long term? 
Well, you know, Nick, when I read this column, my first thought was, I hope everybody in my league reads it, and it drives down the value of Cole Hamels and Johnny Cueto, because if they are traded, there's really nowhere to go for them but up. They have to be moving to a better situation, better park, better team, more run support, better defense than either the Reds or the Phils. And if there's a disconnect there, I'll take my chances on uh, maybe getting Johnny Cueto or Cole Hamels for a lot less than they're going to be worth with the added benefit of pitching for better teams. These are high-skilled pitchers and have been high-skilled pitchers for for a long time. I mean, you look back at... uh, you look back at Cueto, for example, we're at a BPV of, uh, of 130 so far this year, 120 a year ago, 99 is uh, in, in 2012, 93 in 2013. So a very high skill pitcher that with, who's, who's actually growing in skill. And you look at Hamels, you've got the same kind of thing. This is a guy who's had an elite BPV, uh, since he broke into Major League Baseball. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think Ray's got an interesting point, but I, I think I ultimately agree with you, uh, Certainly, these guys are going to do well no matter where they wind up. The thing that's shaky for about them, I guess, is if you're in a, in a NL only or a uh, only league and you lose them if they get traded out of the league, and that's something to certainly think about. And I know certainly in the leagues like that that I play in, now's the time you could grab one of them with all the trade rumors swirling, and you've got at least a 50-50 chance they're going to stay in the league. A little less than that because they they're not going to get traded to Cincinnati or Philadelphia, so there's actually a better than average chance that they're going to go to the American League. So, well, that's uh, true. <laughs> you know, if you're sixth place and you need some lightning in a bottle, maybe this is the way to go. Nick, thanks a million for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the National League for us here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast. Now let's slide over to the American League, and our beat reporter there is BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson, fresh back from vacation. Jock, hello, and welcome back. Hi, PD. It's kind of good to be back. Uh, I enjoyed Mexico, but uh, time to get back to work. And get back to some baseball. Uh, The story this week, as I mentioned to Harold Nichols uh, in the National League report, is about prospects being called up. Let's start in Minnesota for the American League. Byron Buxton got the call up last weekend. He skips AAA, which is happening more and more often as well. And uh, we analyzed his skills at BaseballHQ.com in the call-up space. And his roster potential got some coverage in playing time today. So summarize it all for us, Jock. What is Byron Buxton going to bring to the Twins and fantasy owners? Well, he, he's been brought up, uh, and, and like you said, he's jumped a few levels. He's going to play, obviously. So expect him to start every day in center field. Uh, Minnesota's had a few injuries uh, to their existing center field base. Um, uh, you know, as we've recorded, as we're recording this, Buxton is only two for thirteen uh, over his first few games. So it will be interesting to see if he adjusts upward from here and how much rope Minnesota gives him. Uh, yeah, that said, uh, this is a guy who plays really good defense. Obviously, he's a great athlete. He's a terrific long-term prospect. And if he can play good defense, uh, steal some bases, and keep his batting average around 250, uh, I, I think he's going to be valuable from a fantasy perspective now. Um, this, this is going to be interesting to watch. Jeremy Deloney in the BaseballHQ.com scouting department in his call-ups report said that Buxton is an all-star caliber player who could be a 300 hitter with 20 homers and 50 stolen bases. Of course, they used to say that about B.J. Upton, so take it with a grain of salt, I guess, but clearly this is a top prospect. Yeah, he really is, and his numbers weren't uh, eye-popping, at least in the batting average uh, area. He was only hitting 283 at AA, which I say only, I mean, 
for a, a guy who's gonna who's expected to hit 300 down the road in the majors that that that, that doesn't necessarily bode well but but as we all know Buxton missed two two uh, he missed most of all all of 2014 um, he started off slowly this year he was a little rusty he's really gained a lot of, of steam the only problem I have with that batting average uh, in the short term anyway he makes contact at about an 80 percent rate which is is nothing special um, but I think he's going to improve and obviously his legs give him uh, give him uh, the uh, the the uh, advantage of potentially out hitting that expected BA. Also, he's a, as you mentioned, I think he's a prime defender, which means he's going to have a lot of leeway in Minnesota. It's a big yard. They need to have a good quality defensive center fielder, and Byron Buxton is every bit of that. And uh, while we're talking about that, there must be some center fielder somewhere who thought he had a spot in the starting lineup in Minnesota who no longer does. Who is that? Well, Buxton replaced Aaron Hicks, who has a right forearm strain, is now on the DL, and and his future in Minnesota is already looking grim, given that uh, Buxton was coming fast. Jordan Schaefer is another guy who who had a good uh, last two months of 2014 um, with uh, with the Twins, but he may not have a roster spot when he returns from his leg injury. And Shane Robinson is a career reserve. Those are the names that were manning center field for the Twins before Buxton came up. So I think Byron has a pretty good chance to stick if he can uh, keep that batting average uh, near or above water. None of Hicks, Schaefer, or Robinson was hitting the ball with any uh, authority. I think that this is a, a very good opportunity for Byron Buxton, and I believe it's a pretty good opportunity for anybody who can land him on fab or activation of some kind for fantasy purposes as well. It's going to be fun to watch. Uh, over in Cleveland, Jock, another elite prospect called up. Francisco Lindor steps up to the shortstop job that everybody's been waiting for him to take. Uh, Call-ups column also got into Francisco Lindor. What's the take on the fantasy value of this new Cleveland shortstop? Well, he he was very good in the low minors, at least offensively. He had a couple of 300 years, but his numbers have tailed off somewhat since being elevated to Double A AA and now Triple A. He was hitting a decent 281 in Triple A, over 228 at bats, and he has good plate skills, as shown by a 25 walk, 38 strikeout rate, but only two home runs and a mediocre uh, nine stolen base, seven caught stealing mark. Good athlete, still very young at age 21. Plenty of time to develop. Three for 11 so far with Cleveland. Uh, so I think what you have to hope for at least now is decent middle infield counting stats that won't hurt you. And if you're in a keeper league, you um, you hope he's going to develop like most of the scouts say he will. Interesting parallels with Byron Buxton. Uh, his contact rate, which was slightly above 80% in the minor leagues, he starts off in the major leagues, his first 11 at-bats, just a 64% strikeout rate. So obviously there's an adjustment period to go on. But when he hits the ball, he seems to hit it hard. His hard contact index is 119. Yeah, and that's after uh, 11 at-bats. So we definitely have to watch and see how he's going. But here's another guy who's been called up to play. And, uh, and let's, let's see what happens here. Good prospect. It'll be interesting to watch also because he did play in AAA, unlike Buxton. It'll be because they start at roughly the same time. It'll be interesting to see who makes progress more quickly. Both 21 years old, and I believe uh, we've talked about this before here at Baseball HQ Radio. I know maybe not with you, but I've talked about it with other guys. Uh, anybody who's playing full-time in the majors at age 21, I think there's something like a 50% chance they'll be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's kind of an amazing statistic, and uh, anyone who plays in the majors at 21, uh, obviously somebody has confidence in him somewhere, and he's still got some developing to do, probably.
So meanwhile, what happens to Jose Ramirez, who came into the Cleveland lineup? Everybody's very excited. Here's a shortstop who can hit, blah, blah, blah. Lots of people spent fab money on Jose Ramirez. Now he's replaced by Lindor. Has Jose Ramirez had his Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame? Well, he was obviously demoted and justifiably so, given his 189 batting average and 13% ground ball rate. He hit a lot more line drives in his Major League debut last year. But here's another guy who's only 22 years old and still has time to develop. You put him on another team down the road with his contact rate, which is uh, in the in the mid uh, in the mid 80s, near 90, and and with his speed, he's probably going to be rosterable depending on your league. Over in Texas, Jock, we've talked about Joey Gallo in the past uh, when he got called up a couple of weeks ago. Now he finds himself out in left field, replacing Delano DeShields, who's had a leg injury. Uh, Both you uh, and Rod Truesdell covered this move. You had it in playing time today. He had it in playing time tomorrow. What do you think the move to the outfield does for Gallo's value, especially since we know Adrian Beltre is coming back from the DL sometime around the end of this month or early July? Gallo is is all power right now. Again, he's, he's another one of these stud prospects. He he hasn't had that much AAA time. Um, he's uh, in his first 50 at bats. He's only making 50, 58% contact. It reminds you a little bit of Jock Peterson. You wonder, uh, you wonder how long he can do this. But he has five home runs and seven walks in those 50 at bats. And you talk about hitting the ball hard. Uh, a 148 hard contact rate. Um, and even his expected batting average is 256 with a 58% contact rate. That's kind of amazing. It is. Um, I think I think Gallo uh, staying in left field depends on his defense. Uh, uh, Texas have, has enough at bats to sit him versus tough lefties. And of course, as I say that, he hit a home run off lefty uh, Clayton Kershaw last night. You got to be impressed. So if, if he can keep his defense, uh, uh, you know, uh, in, in the in the uh, in a realistic uh, frame and uh, and and keep hitting for power, he may stick in left field. And what does that mean for uh, regular left fielder Josh Hamilton? Because he's supposed to be back from his rehab assignment sometime in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, it's going to be interesting uh, because uh, Hamilton's another guy who has things to prove. Um, Texas uh, has a has a lot of good problems to have. You've got the DH spot that's been that's been manned uh, by uh, uh, Mitch Moreland. And when you think about some of this stuff, most of these guys have been so injury prone when you come down to Moreland and Hamilton and Delano DeShields, who was doing pretty well before Gallo. Uh, Sometimes these things just take care of themselves. So this is a big wait and see. Interesting to look at that Texas team, by the way, a lot of really good young players sneaking into the lineup and really populating what could be a powerhouse team over the next uh, few years. A lot of people talk about the Cubs jock with uh, Chris Bryant and uh, Addison Russell and so forth, but boy, this Texas team is getting young very quickly. Yeah, Texas has some depth, and the thing that they've really done is make good free agent pickups, uh, getting to Shields from Houston, um, getting uh, Kyle Blanks off the free agent list. Um, those moves have helped, and Texas seems to do that as well as anybody these days. What they can't do, it seems, is get a, a solid and dependable pitching rotation, so uh, that'll be the big thing that they have to work on as well. Uh, over in Anaheim, down by where you live, jock prospect Kyle Kubica was called up to make his Major League debut, and he seems to be getting it at the expense of David Fries, who's injured. You've covered the Angels' offensive woes, and we've talked about them here in Baseball HQ Radio quite a bit this year. But you seem to be skeptical about Kubica replacing Freeze anytime this year. Have you changed your mind on that? Well, first off, let's start with Freeze. He's injured. Uh, it's a minor injury. He's actually DHing uh, while Kubica is, is over at third base. 
Um, the real question mark there is the DH spot and of course the Angel left field spot and they've they've rotated all kinds of names through there and it doesn't surprise me that, that uh, Kubitsa is uh, getting a chance at third base with Freeze at DH. Uh, for one, he's a left-handed hitter. Uh, two, he walks a lot. Um, his walks were down a little bit at AAA this year and uh, so is his batting average. Um, he was hitting about 280, uh, 288 at uh, Salt Lake City, which is no great shakes. And his contact rate was a, was about 80%. Or I'm sorry, no, it was worse than that. It was 72%. It's hardly inspiring. Um, the, the Angels are, are seriously in need of some offense, uh, particularly from the left side. They're going to give Kibitz a shot. They've given everybody else in the organization a shot uh, to play. If he can uh, provide some offense it's when, as soon as Freeze is healthy, uh, him and Freeze will probably uh, form a tandem between uh, third base and, uh, and DH. Um, he's got an opportunity. Um, he doesn't have a lot of power, um, so I, I'm a little bit skeptical that he can stick, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, another case of a prospect coming up and having trouble finding the ball. His contact rate through his first 20 at-bats was down around 59 or 60 percent, which is obviously a you can understand a guy just starting out at Major League Baseball is going to strike out more than probably he will once he gets his feet under him, but still it's a cause for concern, and as you mentioned, he's never been a power hitter, and power is something that every team is looking for from the hot corner. Not that David Freeze is uh, making anybody forget Mike Schmidt, but uh, th this is a, a situation in flux, I think is the way to put it, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and uh, and actually, you know, I'd probably like Freeze a little bit better than most people do. I don't think he's a, he's a superstar. I think Freeze's problem is he hits he hits too many long line drives to the outfield. He makes a lot of hard contact. He actually has ten home runs this year before the All Star break, which which puts him on 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 schedule to uh, to uh, uh, surpass his career high of twenty home runs a few years ago with St. Louis. But you're right, he's not he's not a world beater, and uh, and neither is Kibitza. So. Uh, yeah, the Angels are going to put him in there and let's see what happens. He who hits is going to play in Anaheim. We should say that the BaseballHQ.com projection for uh, Kyle Kubica is not that great. 70-some at-bats the rest of the year, a homer, a few RBIs, that kind of thing. So clearly the uh, brain's trust at the uh, uh, analytics engine at Baseball HQ is not real optimistic about Kyle Kubica getting a lot of playing time. Uh, finally, Jock, not a prospect exactly, but Ivan Nova is coming back, and he's going to re re-enter the Yankee rotation any day now. And it uh, makes me wonder, is there any interest for fantasy purposes with Ivan Nova's return? Yeah, I, I mean, I like Ivan Nova. I mean, if you look at his uh, his uh, recent years before he, he, he went down with uh, Tommy John surgery, this was a guy who seemed to be coming on uh, um, in 2013, his, his uh, ground ball rate, he always, he always had good ground ball pitch, was 54%. He had a 310 ERA in, uh, in 20 starts. Um, and then the Tommy John surgery, obviously, in, in uh, 2014, set him back. Um, he was improving his command. Uh, his strikeouts were right around 7, 8. Um, and, he's, and he's pitched very well in the minors to date. Uh, he's had two starts. Uh, Ten innings, uh, six strikeouts, one walk, throwing ground balls again. I think they're going to insert him in the rotation sometime in June. And uh, uh, I, I mean, if you're looking for a back of the rotation starter in in your deeper leagues, uh, I Ivan Nova looks pretty interesting to me. Baseball HQ's projection for Ivan Nova is a 3.60 ERA, but only in six starts. So uh, it. It's not going to be the kind of situation where Ivanova's going to rescue your uh, rotation or the Yankees, for that matter. 
Well, he's, he, the word is, is that he's going to replace Adam Warren, who has put up decent numbers at the back end of the rotation. Uh, I think his expected ERA is around 4.36, and his ERA is uh, a little over or a little under 4. Um, but Adam Warren has put up better numbers in the pen and is probably more uh, valuable to the Yankees there. Um, I get the, the skepticism with regard to uh, Nova's projections in terms of how many starts he's going to make, and, and we have to see how that elbow holds up and, and how well he does. I mean, AAA is a lot different than the majors. But this is a guy, if he, uh, if he gets uh, back to the Yankees and he runs with the job, he's going to make a lot more starts than, than those projections suggest. It's always interesting to look at the American League, Jock, and you make it more interesting even still. Thanks very much for talking with us, and we'll catch up with you again next Friday. Thanks, PD. Sounds good. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and covers the American League here at Baseball HQ Radio Podcast. When we come back, our regular weekly talk with Todd, it's Todd Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. You worried about getting fined? For He's the one out to get fined. I shouldn't get fined a dog not penny. He screws something up, but I get fined for it. He makes a bad call. All I'm doing is telling him in the dugout the ball's high. He's got rabbit ears and looks over at me, and then he throws me out of the game. Then he tells me I want chill time. Who should get fined? Why don't I I get fined. I get fined. I can't throw him out. That's what bothers me about the game. Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you. So we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. Send your email to bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Og Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. And let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Baseball HQ is working 24-7 to give you everything you need to succeed in your league, like these features. Facts and Flukes performance validation coverage this week looks at struggling Matt Kemp, thriving Adam Lind, hot starting Aaron Harang, and many others. Our Playing Time Today roster coverage looks at the fallout from Will Myers' wrist surgery, the returns of Steven Strasburg and Henderson Alvarez, and much more. And a busy minor league call-ups report has seen analysis not only of the prospects we're talking about on this edition of Baseball HQ Radio, but also Astros outfielder Domingo Santana, Yankees left-hander Jose DePaula, Mets righty Akil Morris, and many others. BaseballHQ.com updates content every day across a wide range of great information, like our Buyer's Guide skills assessment columns, that performance validation in facts and flukes, those roster changes in playing time today and tomorrow, as well as daily matchups, team coverage, minor league scouting, and more. And we also have great tools, like our projections and other roster management systems you can use to help you dominate your league or the daily fantasy tournaments. And it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. 
Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really good to be back, Patrick. I should tell you that the uh, very first email came in to bhqradio at gmail.com. It's our new uh, email address. You can send in your comments, your questions, if you have any ideas about uh, things we ought to be asking our experts or experts you'd like to hear from, uh, please uh, use bhqradio at gmail.com. And uh, our first email included this sentiment, uh, I love the podcast, look forward to each listen. My favorites are the talks with Todd Zola. Wow, there you go. Yeah, it's a nice pat on the back. I'm glad you got my email. <laughs> yeah, and it was a master stroke of you being a fellow who lives in Boston to sign yourself as a woman who lives in North Carolina. And so you certainly fooled me. Not that fooling me is any great accomplishment, I suppose. Uh, Todd, on Twitter, you said that anybody who's drooling about the coming return of Jose Fernandez should maybe be a little bit circumspect and should maybe look at Matt Harvey's game logs. Well, basically, it's already happening with the with the rehab outings and, and Fernandez is going out there and throwing his five innings and striking out his six or seven guys and the, the tweets are coming over about how their season's going to be saved and he's back and all this sort of thing. Not unlike the the buzz that Matt Harvey had in spring training when he went out and he was knocking guys down left and right. I'm not, not you know, striking them out left and right. Um, you know, just Matt Harvey's having a fine season. I think we could look at his ERA and WHIP, and I think anybody, any of us would be pretty happy to have that on our on our ledger. But if you look at the game scores, there's a couple of seven run games and a four run game. Uh, it's it hasn't been all smooth sailing for Harvey, and you got to keep in mind that Harvey had the full 16-month recovery from TJS and an off-season regimen where he was able to work with the team and, and, and do things a little bit easier than, than Fernandez may, since he's doing a lot of the rehab during the season and in, in extended spring training. So it's just a way to slow your roll. I mean, Jose Fernandez is wonderful, but don't expect your team you know, to suddenly turn around if you've been able to stash him on your reserve or or the whatnot. That's all. It's just, and in, in if there's anybody that you can use as an example, you know, is there anybody better than Matt Harvey to use as an example? He has his own. He has his own hashtag on Twitter. For goodness sakes. I think the important thing there that you mentioned is that Harvey had the chance to go through not only the rehab through the off season, but also had the chance to pitch for a complete spring training. Right, and there's a whole psychological aspect of. You know, it might, when I really throw this ball in anger, is is everything going to be okay? And Harvey was able to get over that in March. You know, Fernandez is going to do it on a major league ball field when the when the when the games count. So there's a little bit to sit, to be said for that as well. So that's I mean, I'm not you know I'm not telling you to drop Jose Fernandez. All you know, it's just saying you know temper your expectations. What you get is gravy. Uh, you know, be realistic about what he's going to help you. How he's going to help your team. And you know, go go from there. Uh, more more of a next year sort of thing than than this year. And again, if Matt Harvey can give up seven runs twice in a season, so can Jose Fernandez. Yeah, and those uh, the the uh, game logs for Matt Harvey show that it's been more recently, that is later in the season, that he really started to struggle. At one point, Todd in mid May, Matt Harvey's rolling five star ERA was down around one twenty three. Now his rolling five star ERA is up to five sixty three, and he's been giving up home runs like crazy. 
Yep, and you know the whip is still good. I mean, he it's a lot. Of, he's pitching into a, a little bit of home run for, for per fly ball. Uh, bad luck, but um, again, it's just a uh, a way to keep in mind. You know, we talk a little bit about some of the prospects that have come up too. The same sort of thing is that you know baseball is hard. Don't get overly enthusiastic about one or two. You know, great. You know, Carlos Correa, how he started. You know, that sort of thing. You know, this is a hard game. Let's keep everything in check. You also had an article recently taking yourself to task for not being aggressive enough in fab bidding in National League tout. That was in our in the fab reports that I produced for Masters Ball. We uh, we go through the labor and the tout wars pickups, and I'll, I'll I, I provide them with all the different bids, and then someone from uh, from Masters Ball that's in each league talks about what they did, and then I sort of give a an out out of the box perspective in the league and uh, try to maybe do some fab strategy and well, the league I'm in is the NL Tout Wars and yeah what I, I I'm in the tweeners as far as amount of fab I'm not going to get anybody good that comes over because I've had to spend some fab and I started the year uh, behind the eight ball because I had a poor season last year and they penalize us if you don't get to a certain threshold and I was just kind of kicking myself because not that these guys would have, you know, taken my second to last place team and, and, and propelled me to the top of the standings. But there, especially because it was a victory, there was just no, uh, there was no reason to, to sort of whittle waddle with, with kind of smaller bids. I should have just gone in, gotten these guys, you know, because the, the, one of the things it's, it's kind of, I don't know if, not so much regret, but one of the things that frustrates me a little bit about the game now is we make more decisions based to if, because we hope a player will do well more so than we think he'll do well. But that's just the way the game is. And I should have been more aggressive on some guys that I hope do well. You know, I didn't necessarily think they would, but it doesn't matter anymore. You just have to bid on opportunity. And I just was a little, you know, there was no reason for me to save money because I'm not going to get anybody. So, you know, a little bit candid on the piece. I should have bid more. Don't make that mistake on your own leagues. It's a tough thing to try to figure out, though. You know, I, I had a situation just this last week where I was looking at guys I thought I could use, uh, looking at my situation in the outfield particularly, and at, at some point I, I just decide I've got to spend this much to to make sure of getting a guy or in hopes of getting a guy and so forth. And it, it's a real tough balancing act because you, I was at the time I was making the decision, I was the top guy in fab in my league. I'd got a big refund, unfortunately, from Adam Wainwright uh, being, uh, out for the year. So I was sitting on top of the pile as far as fab, and I, I'm thinking, gosh, I could be lo- losing out on a guy down the road, but I'd rather have a bird in the hand than two in the bush. But I could be wrong about that. Right. Well, you're in the mixed league, so you at least have to, you don't have to worry about, you know, is it going to be a crossover trade? So you're just looking at, you know, closers coming into new positions, or, you know, is there going to be another minor leaguer along the way? And as we've talked about, where you're still getting around 16 weeks of performance as opposed to eight or nine if you if you wait to the trade deadline or when the next set of rookies get called up or whatever. So I think that's always important. But, yeah, you know, I, I going through the bids, it's one of the – because I wanted to comment on that because you did notice you had the high amount, and you must have said to yourself, you know, Byron Buxton is going to be the, the best chance for me to improve my team for the for the course of the season, so I'm going to go – well, you don't have to go all in, but you're gonna you, you you bid what it took, knowing that victory would bring it down to one more than the last person, 
And, uh, you know, he was the guy you still have a lot of fab left. You can still make moves, but he was your, you know, he was the, cha- the, the big, the big gun. You know, you, he was the big shot you took. And, uh, I kind of agree with that thinking. And I, if I was in that position, Buxton would have been the guy I would have gone for as well. And the thing about Tout Wars, like many leagues, is we have six-man reserve squads, and you're allowed to carry minor leaguers on those reserve squads if you like, including picking them up partway through the year. It's a fairly common practice, in fact. You have to put them on your active roster for one week, the week that you fab him, and then you can drop him to the reserve. And a lot of guys do that. And so Byron Buxton not only is a good player, but also he's he was a player that was on the free agent list when he when he got called up so he was he was available to me and not already reserved by somebody speculating earlier in the season and when i looked at my roster i'm leading the league in home runs i'm doing fairly well in rbis what i needed to do is improve my runs and stolen bases and i thought if byron buxton contributes anything early in his career i think the power may come not immediately but for right now he should be able to steal some bases and he should be able to score some runs to me the job is his i see some people speculating that you know when aaron hicks comes back aaron hicks is not going to stop byron buxton at this point he he's not to me anyway he now has a job they're putting him in you know they're putting him at the top of the order not necessarily brian dozier but he's, he's going to be getting the opportunity to run. Minnesota does run. The park lends itself to that game. It's an interesting park. We talked about this a few weeks back where it depresses homers, but it's good for offense because of the gaps and, and the whatnot. And I think Minnesota knows that and plays to the park. So I think he's going to be getting plenty of opportunity to run. Uh, so as long as if he can just, you know, you know, stay within himself, you know, get the ball on the ground, you know, get on base. I do think you're going to see uh, some good stuff out of Bucks. And even if he hits ninth in the American League, hitting ninth isn't so bad because you do you, you get a lot of stolen bases out of the nine hole in the American League. I don't want to hit eighth in the National League, but I don't mind hitting ninth in the American League because then uh, you do you do get stolen bases. You also mentioned, Todd, when you were discussing Byron Buxton, that people are comparing him to Carlos Gomez or even Andrew McCutcheon. And in the same vein, they're comparing Francisco Lindor to Eric Ibar, which would be a fantastic comparison. But those comparisons are at prime of their lives, not at the rookie seasons. Yeah, that's the point. Uh, yeah, the other one, you know, because Lindor came up at the same time. So everybody wants to know a comp, Every you know, even in the HQ forums. Everybody wants to know another player that they can think, you know, how good's Buxton going to be, and a couple. Of, I, I heard Carlos Gomez more than others, and and then Lar Michaels, our friend Lar, uh, compared him to Andrew McCutcheon. I agree. I think I'm more of a Gomez than I am uh, McCutcheon comp because I think there's going to be a little bit more speed than power, and I think that's more Gomez. But either way, the point is that's not what we're going to get this year. And the other guy you mentioned was Lindor. A lot of people talk about say an Eric Ibar comp. But again, that's not this year. Uh, this year, they're rookies. They're, 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 we're talking about in the prime of their career that they're going to be putting up Carlos Gomez slash Eric Ibar type numbers. So I think a lot of people, when they hear the comps, extend it to, oh, good. Well, let's see if Gomez is going to hit 20 and 40, and halfway through the season, I'm going to get 10 and 20 from Buxton. Well, that's not what it means. It means in three or four years, that's what you get from Buxton. It doesn't mean you'll get it necessarily this year. And I think, you know, similar to slowing the roll with Fernandez, let's put the brakes on a little bit. Uh, Byron Buxton is going to be a great player, but it's his rookie season. And, you know, Alex Rodriguez was sent down. Mike Trout didn't have a good beginning. It's uh, not guaranteed that he's going to be the savior for your team. 
That goes for you, too. He's not necessarily going to be the savior for your tout team. And I think uh, from that perspective, I was in pretty good shape because I'm not expecting him to be the savior. I'm expecting him to fill a gap that I identified in my in my productivity, namely runs and stolen bases. And and if he can do that while not killing me in on-base percentage, I'll take it. I'm not expecting him to lift my team from, I think I'm fourth right now, into the, into the lead. I, I don't think I have the pitching to get into the lead, frankly, but I'd like to compete hard, and I think this was one way to do it. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. Talking about Lindor, you wrote in your uh, Tout Wars coverage of the fab bidding that he didn't go for more of a bid in AL Tout. And you said, okay, uh, maybe the fab leaders can wait, but how many more players are going to become available? What's your take on the low price for Lindor? I think that people are, I think they're almost, they were bidding towards the narrative and the narrative being, He's all glove, no stick, at least at this point of his career. And I think, you know, it, it, to, to, to the two extremes, I think we overbid on prospects that have, you know, a huge hype. And I think we're underbidding on the other end where the, where the prospect rating, rating is saying he's not going to be so great. It's, and, and I'm not coming out and saying that, that, that Lindor is going to be all that because, like I'm saying, tempering expectations. But are there really going to be five more or four more players that can impact your team to his extent that come over a, 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 to the American League over the course of the season? That was my question. I think there'll be an, a one or two, but I, th- I think we counted that where there was the uh, there could have been five people that outbid the winning bid. And that was my question. Were the other were the people, the third and the fourth and the fifth most fab, uh, are they making a mistake by – did they make a mistake by not going harder after Lindor? Now you have to keep in mind that you can trade for Fab. So who's to say that what who's going to have the most Fab at the actual deadline? And you mentioned your your Adam Wainwright got hurt. There, you know someone can maybe one of these other guys is sort of I don't say hoping somebody gets hurt, but realizing if they do, they suddenly jump up. But the point being, I think you have to sort of put everything in context. And similar to how Buxton will help you in steals, that's where Lindor can potentially help an American League-only team is in the stolen base category. He's not hitting at the top of that order. Uh, Buxton, we're not sure about with Minnesota, depending how they things flush out. Lindor is going to be hitting towards the bottom. He's going to be hitting where Jose Ramirez was hitting, and he was there for steals. So if you needed, maybe you didn't, maybe the 3, 4, and 5 team didn't need steals, but there's nothing to say you couldn't trade a player. Uh, you have the you have the free asset, now you can go about and trade trade for uh, trade the player. I just, uh, I don't know. You know, on one hand, you know, I myself wasn't aggressive and then I'll tout and here I am, you know, chastising for my brethren for not being aggressive. But, you know, it's, it's, that's what I saw. So that's what I wrote. What do you make of the idea that we should uh, invest heavily in fab, even if we don't particularly need a player because we might be able to create a trade market for the player after the fact? Especially if you can trade fab, you might even be able to get some fab back. I think that's very contextual to the person. If you're a good trader, if you have the patience, if you've got a good rapport with the league, I think it's great. If, if you're not a good trader, then I don't know that I want to rely on trading to get it done. Uh, so as silly as that may seem, you, you, you might actually, you know, get back less or, or hurt yourself or whatever. But if you're a good trader, and you're patient and you're willing to me the hardest part about trading you know if you've got three or four people you're talking with that's two or three that you're going to have to say no and that's the hard part for me um 
So if 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 you're a good trader, I think that's a great way to go about. I wouldn't be. I think it's a viable plan anyway. I, I don't know that you, you never, every time you want to rely on a trade, there's a bit of a risk. But if you've got a good track record of getting things done via deals, I see no problem with it. That raises an interesting point. The, the idea of being able to trade your way to success is a fairly common trope in a lot of the analysis you see in preseason, where the mantra for a lot of drafters is uh, draft the best team you can and trade for balance as opposed to drafting for balance in the first place. And oftentimes what's left out of that equation is that little caveat that you tag on at the end after a comma that says, if you're good at trading. Because if you're not, it's a terrible strategy. You end up with a terribly unbalanced team that you can't correct. Right. And it also, you're sort of at the whims of the league and who needs what, and did you yourself get injuries along the way? Um, I think, you know, I used to go by that myself but it, it was a different time a different era as well i think it's harder to trade from a strength to improve a weakness because i don't i don't think the hitting cat there's enough hitting stats out there right now to really build up that surplus with the with the less and i know everything's relative but it's more compacted as well the the high is lower and the, and the low is a little bit higher so i don't know that you can build up that huge excess to be able to pull that off as well anymore so you know i i i think you you can't let a bargain go by and that sort of thing in an auction but if i was uh if i was the 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 young kid coming up like we were with masters ball 15 years ago and that was sort of our 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 catchphrase i don't know that that would be my uh the catchphrase now is you know exactly you know draft for value trade for balance i don't think that would be my uh my catchphrase nowadays. Okay, so what would your catchphrase be nowadays? Just leave me alone. I'm getting old. I don't know. Uh, I I think uh, I have to think about that. But I I I guess it would be be along the lines of, of uh, you know pitching counts too, because I think that's the uh, the other back in the day you didn't worry as much about pitching because it was so much easier to get pitching in season to to help your teams. And that's the other thing. I, I look at these fab reports, and I every week I look to see what starting pitchers are being picked up midseason. Is it really true that you can fortify your team midseason? And I know this is a bit of an odd year, but I, I'm not seeing the uh, the pitchers that people, you know, the help, in the, especially in the mixed leagues, I'm not seeing these pitchers that are going to really impact, influence the uh, – affect the ratios as I think some people hope they will. Well, speaking of pitchers, earlier in the show I was talking with Harold Nichols about the National League and the expectation, and I think we can safely call it an expectation, that Cole Hamels and Johnny Cueto, uh, among others, are probably going to be traded, and odds being what they are, there's a slightly better chance they end up in the American League crossing over than they do in the National League staying put. Uh, in that event, do you think that people should be hoarding the the front runners in Fab and National League onlys should be hoarding that Fab in that expectation, even if they're bypassing a Francisco Lindor or even a Jose Fernandez? Should he come up well ahead of that kind of trade? We're getting close to the point where if you've gone this far, you might as well weigh it out because at this point we've got another I don't know what is it six or seven weeks. And the other thing that and I actually need to check on this to make sure that I'm right, but 
Uh, it, it may seem insignificant, but I don't think it is. The season started a week later, so if the trade deadline is still the 31st, you actually get, you know, an extra an extra week than in, in previous seasons out of your player that you get on August 1st because the season doesn't end till a, a few days into October. And, and when you're at the edges, that's actually pretty important. But I want to make sure the trading deadline is still the 31st. I think it is. Uh, but the point being, uh, yeah, yeah, you get your players a little bit longer. But um, if you've waited this long, you know, obviously needs are needs. But sure, if you've waited this long, and, and a guy like Hamels and a guy like Cueto because they are so good, they could have as much uh, influence, impact on your roster in two and a half or two months in a week as a lesser pitcher might have if you have them from now until the end of the season. So for the special players, yeah, I can see waiting on a Cueto and waiting on a Hamels, especially because it's pitching. Um, I don't know at this point if I would wait on a guy for the counting stats, although I don't think we're hearing as much about hitters being moved, at least not the top-end hitters. Uh, and I think if you are waiting for Cueto and you are waiting for Hamels, I think you're a little bit bummed out that the Red Sox are uh, are not performing up to the top of their capabilities at this point because that's one team out of the equation at this point. What about the idea that people sometimes overestimate how much effect adding even a top quality pitcher like uh, Cole Hamels or like a Johnny Cueto to their roster at this stage of the season or especially down the road at the trade deadline I looked at Tout Wars Mixed and the overall leader has 600 innings pitched just short of 600 innings pitched through the first 12 weeks that's 50 innings a week and that means with the trade deadline six weeks from now he should be up around 900 innings and the theory is, I've heard people say that at that point it gets so hard to move the ERA or WHIP because the denominator is so big that a trade like that or an acquisition like that is not worth doing. What do you say about that? One of my mantras is is just that, is there is movement to be had, and that's primarily because you're right about the denominator, but the spread between... And again, this is league contextual too, depending upon, depending upon your league and where you sit within the cluster. But there's usually a cluster of ERAs and a cluster of whips that are really close. It's not a linear spread from top to bottom. And if you find yourself at the bottom of a cluster, a Cole Hamels or Johnny Cueto could be four or five points. If you're in the wrong end of that cluster, it may be one or two or it might not be anything. Uh, but on the average... You know, the, looking things globally, they can help. Uh, so again, it depends upon where you are. I don't, I wouldn't get, you know, just categorically turned off. I would do the due diligence and look in my standings and see where I sit within the ERA and within the whip. And again, you're projecting out another six weeks at the time, you know, it's easy to do at the time, but don't get caught up in the fact that it, it just can't happen, especially if you're replacing a lousy starter. Uh, now you get your double benefit of someone who's been, you know, helping your wins and helping your Ks, but hurting your ratios, replacing it with someone who's going to be helping everything. So I'm not going to say, you know, you're wrong. It'll You can gain points, but the possibility does definitely exist that you can. When you are considering making a move of any kind with with an eye towards ERA and WHIP, you really should sit down with a pencil and paper or, if you're handy with it, uh, an Excel spreadsheet Project out where approximately you think you're going to be. Project out what happens if you drop your worst pitcher and add in Johnny Cueto with whatever you project for him. And do the math and find out, okay, if I do these moves, if I drop 
my uh, my terrible pitcher and add Johnny Cueto, I'm going to end up at uh, you know three point seven nine four. And and when I project my league, it looks like that gains me. Oh gosh, I thought it would be five points. It's only one because of the way the league is spread out. Or conversely, oh my gosh, it's a six point gain because you know we're all bunched in that area, as you said. Right. The other thing to keep in mind with the ratios and with the WHIP is. As opposed to counting stats, the possibility exists that the guys you're trying to catch will move back, yeah, fall back to you. Mm-hmm. Exactly the, you right. Know, their their staff has doesn't perform as well as they've had in their present ratio. You know, their whip of one point one nine is now one point two oh five or something, and and you you know you pass them by not doing anything. So it's just another factor to keep in mind when you are working with ratios that there is a chance. And, and take a look too. You know, take a look at your opponent if. Your opponent has got Jose Fernandez, and Jose Fernandez is pitching well. These ratios are bound to get better organically. But if, if uh, I don't want to put the jinx on a pitcher, but if you know a really good pitcher happens to get hurt in the next few weeks, that team's ratios are likely to get worse. So you know, look at that as well as you're doing your as you're doing the math, so to speak, to try to you know project out where you might finish up. It's a lot of work. We should we should point that out. It's a lot of work. You have to have projections that you're comfortable with using. There's a certain amount of of imprecision with those projections. We all understand that. But you have to at least figure out whether it's worth doing. Uh, there are situations, for instance, earlier this year, I was looking at making some trades in my Tout Wars uh, team. In the context I looked at it, I was thinking of offering some power, which I seem to have a bit more of than I need trying to pick up some good ERA and whip innings. And I was down at the bottom of ERA and whip, and I thought, you know what? I'm just not going to do this. I'm just, it doesn't make sense for me to do it at this time. Now, fast forward three or four weeks, I'm now in the middle of the pack and whip, having done nothing. But some of the guys in front of me fell back, just like you said. And some of my pitchers, just because I was making some changes, I got rid of some of my worst pitchers and replaced them here and there. And they've contributed little dribs and drabs here. And Having been second from the end, I'm now more or less in the middle, a little bit below the middle, but I've certainly got a chance to pick up two or three more points and finish in the middle, which would be huge. I'm going from two points to maybe seven or eight. And the, and ditto in ERA. I was dead last. Now I'm fourth from last, and I could, just glancing at it, see that I'm w- well within four more points. Right. Now, you meant it, sort of, it was in passing, but I think it's an important point sort of in general. You said it's work. Uh, you know, winning should be hard. You shouldn't, you shouldn't win a league and coast. You should have to earn to win that. You know, you should have to do the work to win that league. Where, you know, it doesn't matter if it's tout wars or labor or, or a home league. There's a bunch of good players and it should be how, you know, how hard you work should be part of the equation. And, you know, these, these guys that, that, that have huge leagues now and begin to coast. You know, they they could be in trouble because there's someone out there grinding and is going to do all this work, and they're going to find and the edges where they can get more points. So, you know, in in a keeper league, it, it should really hurt. You should have to trade away some of your your good keepers. But you know, winning is hard, and it, you should earn the win. It shouldn't be just handed to you. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. Todd, in discussing the uh, whole fab situation as you were talking about at mastersball.com, you also said you were rethinking scarcity at the draft because of the changes in how in-season replacements are able to fill in. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I I don't have a final answer for you yet, which is actually going to lead into the the most important point about this whole discussion. But in uh, in in the mixed labor, I just had to replace Lonnie Chisenhall. 
And I remember specifically, this is a draft, thinking to myself, well, you know, I, I don't like any of these third basemen, but I know somewhere around 20, round 20, I'm going to have my choice of Lonnie Chisenhall, Trevor Plouffe, or Nick Castellanos. And at the time, you know, I throw them all in a head, pick one out. I, you know, I, as it turned out, I, I, I picked, I got the wrong, the wrong one of the three, but the point being, when I went to replace Chisholm Hall, there was just nothing there. And I just, you know, did I make a mistake? Should I have been a little bit more open to jumping up a, a different, a, a better third baseman early? And I don't know the answer just yet, but my, the point I was making, and I think it's important, is that now's the time to do that work. Now, because one of the re- the main reason being you have access to your stats, sites, transactions, and the moves, and you don't have to go through hoops in order to get that information. I can go back and I can look to see. Maybe I'm wrong, and maybe the, f- the free agents at every position right now are, are are terrible, and it didn't matter what position it was. You know, go back. Did I miss out on an opportunity to upgrade my third baseman in the previous, say, six or eight weeks, and I just got lackadaisical and you know i should have bid on this third baseman at this point so the information is there and for me now it might not be for me available in december when i have a free moment and want to go back and look depending upon you know what site you use and the access etc so i think the the bigger message was you know look into it now don't wait but you know it is something i am going to look into because you know i'm a proponent of not adding a dollar a dollar or two to a player because of position you know scarcity or jumping up around as far as, you know, raw value goes. But there might be something too, I don't know, but there might be something too, uh, doing it for in-season replacement purposes. Now, if I had a, a corner infielder, I had, if I had more flexibility on my roster, you know, and I could move my corner to the, to third, my utility to corner, et cetera, you know, I might not be having this problem. So maybe the answer is to have more flexibility on the roster, have your Martin, Martin Prados and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I don't know. But again, now is the time to sort of think about it and look into it while it's fresh in your head and you have the information at your fingertips. Yeah, the uh, idea that we should add some dollar value to flexible players, you mentioned Prado, Ben Zobrist, another guy. Uh, I even applied it to Emilio Bonifacio, uh, much to my chagrin later on because he hasn't done anything. But I think there is some value to be had in knowing that you can move a guy from outfield to second to fill in for a, a hurt second baseman and outfielders are more plentiful. But isn't it interesting that a lot of people say you should not adjust your values according to position because of the relative scarcity of guys of that position in the likely free agent pool when you're considering your draft. But a lot of people of those same people will say, but yeah, you got to add money to catchers. Well, I think that, the, I mean, if you, if you do the replace, that has to do more with the replacement level of the catchers because that's the only position where I do do a bump as far as the replacement level bump actually well i go against the replacement level of of in general it just turns out that there's not a bump for these other positions um although in the in i'm finding in the on base leagues there is a little bit more of a bump for uh uh, outfield and first base as compared to second baseman so if i were to be doing an on base league uh i might well, it just might, the prices of my middle infield just might be higher. But this has nothing to do with replacement, uh, sorry, in-season replacement. It just has to do with how I'm pricing them at the beginning. Uh, I'm, I, I think, you know, the next level of, uh, is to really think, it's not, you're not just 
the draft doesn't end, I do think you do need to think about what happens in season uh, as far as injuries and the whatnot. And even just the ability, you know, you mentioned your, your power versus speed, you know, conundrum with, with your team. Just to have that flexibility in order to manage your roster to improve the categories you need to improve, forget injuries, but, you know, you might have a, you now you've gotten that, you now have Buxton, you might, you know, you might not be able to choose between two players to see which way, you know, who has more games that week to help out this category versus that category and, you know, improve your, your standings that way as well. Um, maybe the answer is more flexibility, especially in today's game and not, and, and, and if I'm going to up the price of anybody, it's the multi-eligibility guys as opposed to paying more for Kyle Seeger or Josh Donaldson or some of the other more stable third basemen that uh, that I you know, didn't want to get at the time during that draft. Yeah, I think the, the whole thing really is begging to be looked at more deeply because uh, the standard way of doing player valuation, and I think this is fairly common across all the methods, uh, somehow incorporates that idea of the replacement level guy, the 25th catcher and so on down the list, the 61st uh, outfielder and so on in a 12-team league. And maybe we need to recalculate or reassess what we mean by replacement level because with injuries, we are going to be going deeper into all of those pools because we can't just say, okay, here are the 24 top catchers, the 25th guy is the replacement level guy, and that's it. Because if four catchers get hurt during the year, all of a sudden we're down to the 29th guy. And if seven of them get hurt, then we're down to the 33rd guy or whatever, the 31st guy, and and so on down the line. Do you know what I mean? That we need to maybe rethink what it means to be replacement level. That sort of thing happens, and I think you can get a, you know, a handle of it over the course of several years and, and find out that it, it, the same thing happens every year. So whatever you do sort of works because it happens every single year values in general you mentioned replacement level you're counting on your projection of the player to be right you're counting on the projection of the replacement level to be right and you're counting on the stats contributed by the entire playing field to be right in order for your overall dollar value to be right you know the chances of you know any of the, any one of those three is off you could have projected a player's statistics perfectly but if you were wrong about the replacement if you were wrong about the entire field the value you give him, it might not be right. I don't know that I want to, you know, extend my my decimal point. I don't see a player's worth twenty six dollars and forty two cents. You know that that sort of thing, like some people might do. Uh, I, I I think you just have to sort of ballpark it more and, and, and relate is so and so better than so and so. But I, in Stephen, it's you know the sort of the same thing. I think you just throw dollars out the window. We've talked about it before. I'm sure it'll come up again in the next few weeks as trading starts to kick in but it's it's all about categories it's all about stats at this point you can throw you know throw that sort of thing out the window when you do your projections and then i'm sure you look at them at the end of each year and figure out what went well and what didn't do you tend to find that in the aggregate your total home runs is pretty close to what got produced that your total rbis total wins and so forth are pretty close or do they vary pretty widely the answer is it's fairly close but you know projecting especially now where I do so much work for the for the the high stakes that they they go really really deep and they want everybody everybody projected and you have to sort of literally project more at bats than a team's going to get just because you have to have every player covered. Um, but what I'll do is I'll go back and I'll look at what of the draft worthy pool in a 15 team league. 
did it turn out that my home run total was close to the home run total of fantasy? Because to me, that's more important. That's what that's what's actionable. Yeah. And it's never going to be exact, and especially with stolen bases, we're just not sure. And you know, offense is declining. Uh, you know, you use a three-year average, so it, you're always going to be pulling in some stats from previous season that might have been higher. But it's always, you know, look, try to, you know, is it within 10%? Is it with 20%? And it's fairly close, but as, as far as the, the global goes, of course, you know, in, internally, who knows on a, on a micro basis what player you got right or wrong. But it's as close as it, 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 it sort of matches how baseball was. If, if, if baseball had 200 more home runs than it did the previous season, then the projections sort of re- reflect that. I'm never able to predict the difference from one season to the next, though. It just the projections kind of piggyback along with what happened. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Todd Zola. And Todd, I know you're looking at a, a new topic about daily fantasy that you're going to be posting uh, sometime this week on FantasyAlarm.com. And I, I think it's an interesting question because we've talked about it here at Baseball HQ Radio. I've talked about it with you and with others. And it has to do with uh, what you call the thinning of the herd. And that as the initial rush and fun of being part of daily fantasy gives way to, hey, I don't win this very much and it's just costing me money, then those, what we call the dead money, leaves the table. It gets harder to compete because more of the players who are left behind are good at it. And uh, I wonder, where did you come at, how are you coming at this? I'm not the first person to write about this or talk about this. It's, it's I don't want to call it a phenomenon, but it, it exists every season. And we're about that time where it occurs now, you mentioned, you know, people that deposit and match their deposits and, and that sort of thing. And what's happening, the, the football, I'm sorry, the basketball and the hockey are now over. And there are some people that, you know, they're on the site every other day and they'll dabble in the baseball or maybe they won the hockey pool the night before. So they have a little bit more of a bankroll. So they'll play baseball, that sort of thing. Uh, baseball is now the only game in town and. It's also the other, you know, it's just life has changed. Your kids are home from school. You're going on vacation. Um, you know, you don't, you, you need money for other things at this point, for other entertainment. It just, for the next six weeks, the the water is full of sharks. The minnows are now gone. If you're, if you're a shark, that's great. But if you're sort of a tweener, you have to understand that things are a little bit more difficult. And, you know, we'll talk cash game versus a tournament. Part of the edge in the cash games is all the dead money. If the dead money is gone and you no longer have that edge, it's probably not wise to continue to play so many cash games where you're just trying to finish in half the field because, you know, whatever, 10% of the field is just dead money. Uh, you know, if you're going to be taking chances, if you feel you need a little luck, if you feel you need to take chances just to cash in a cash game, well, then you probably should be entering that team in attorney. And and because you know you're you're looking for the upside, and that's the definition of a, of a tournament. So I, I'm not the first person to come out with this uh, this this idea, uh, but I, I did think it was something that needed to be uh, discussed. And things will flip once it, once football season starts. Not only do you get the fish playing football, but specifically in baseball, a lot of it has to do with just people playing, having money in their accounts. Uh, you know, and so therefore then they'll dabble over and play a little bit of baseball as well. So even for the baseball crowd, you know, it will loosen up a little bit uh, in, in August. It's just these next six weeks, 
you know, play less if you, uh, you know, don't, don't, don't uh, dissolve your bankroll before you even get to this opportunity. Play less. And if you really, for whatever reason, really, really like a team, you know, play, play that one team a little bit more. Um, you know, the, cause the other thing that we mentioned it and, and I didn't mention it in the column, but I've talked about it with some of my friends is what's happening as well is there, people are using certain sources to get information. And if every single source out there is telling you to play Clayton Kershaw, well, then Clayton Kershaw is going to have a really, really, really high usage rate that night. And you don't necessarily get the advantage of having Clayton Kershaw. Now you're relying on your bats. So if you say to yourself, well, I'm going to go against it. I'm not going to use Clayton Kershaw because I think so-and-so is going to help me win this. Well, again, that's that's a tournament mentality. That's not You don't want to do that in a cash game. So it's just think about what you're doing. Slow your roll for the next six weeks, and don't you know? Don't get over aggressive. It is different out there now. You're playing with a different group of people. I had never thought before about the added attraction of uh, when football starts. In my mind, I'd always thought when football starts, more people are going to leave baseball. But what you're saying is because they're on the site and because they have money to spend, I think especially if they lose that football on Sunday and Monday, that maybe Tuesday or Wednesday they get the itch and, and they've got some money in there. They'll, baseball's the only thing they can play between weekends for football. Maybe there's going to be more dead money moving back into the pool, which seems exactly the opposite of what I'd expect. It is. It's just, it's just, it's, even if you win, if you have that extra money, you know, you, you hit your pool right. the night before and you have a little extra money, I'm going to play this baseball. Plus, you, you know that football's going to have the same you know, matching funds so people have money in their account. And it's not huge. It's it's enough it's enough to, to tilt the edge back uh in the favor. And not to not the other thing too is some some of the baseball grinders the uh, the all the big tournaments are in August and they want to qualify for the tournaments and they want to you know once once all those qualifications are over with and that's when they're putting all their work, they don't always want to put the same work into just a regular old tournament in September. They want to, you know, if they're doing the work, they want to enter into these qualifiers to win a million and, you know, play regular, use that lineup in the, as well. September, you know, the whole big money thing is over. So you do get some of those really, really hardcore people out of it. You know, they're, they're now focusing on football and college football and, and soccer at the time and that sort of thing. So we baseball people, it will loosen up for us again. Just make sure you've got the bankroll and the, the money there to, to take advantage of it in, uh, in, you know, come September. Great advice, Todd. I really appreciate that you take the time to think about this stuff and share it with us. Uh, of course, we always like having you. We have, a, as I mentioned, our very first letter to uh, bhqradio at gmail.com. Mention Todd Zola specifically and, and certainly should have. Uh, Todd, thanks a million. We'll catch up with you again next week. Actually, yeah, I got the uh, FSTA meeting next week, so maybe I'll have some uh, interesting nuggets to report from that. All right, we'll get the hot scoop. Uh, Todd Zola uh, writes for BaseballHQ.com, also for ESPN and for Fantasy Alarm, and of course, MastersBall.com. And as I say every week, uh, when Todd Zola's writing, you ought to be reading. And when he's talking, you should listen. When we come back, our regular Baseball HQ commentaries for Friday, pitcher matchups, and master notes next on Baseball HQ Radio. And I don't want the worst umpire in the league... Myself, the coaches, and the players can take only so much of this crap.
That was a classic the last two games. I'm going to tell you right now. 23 years, that's the worst I ever saw. Now, when they don't attack me personally, again, I don't give a Because I got more time than all those out there. But when they start talking about this ball club, don't back me up against the fucking wall. Because if it weren't for the good umpires in the league, all the other guys out there, Brooklyn and Perpetio, would be in the minor league. Maybe. Maybe. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davin. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. I'm on deck with Master Notes, and now it's our Pitcher Matchups Report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on opponent, park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers with a matchup rating of plus 2 and higher, while we suggest you avoid pitchers with matchup ratings below 0. Anything in between is a cost-benefit analysis you have to make in the context of your own situation. Now, looking at Chicago White Sox lefty Carlos Rodon hosting Rangers righty Giovanni Gallardo, Atlanta righty Julio Terran hosting Mets right-hander Matt Harvey, and other weekend matchups, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. It's Father's Day weekend, so let's start with a one-item game of Jeopardy. Remember to respond in the form of a question. The answer is, because there are no ties in baseball. The question is, why is baseball the perfect Father's Day gift? And there are no ties in the BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups tool this weekend either. Instead, there is a nice selection of Father's Day gift recommendations and warnings. Two of the top three matchup ratings on Saturday are in the American League. In hitter-friendly U.S. Cellular Field on the south side of Chicago, Carlos Rodon puts up his matchup rating of 267, not against Giovanni Gallardo, who was bumped to Sunday, but against Texas's somewhat surprising Nicholas Martinez and his matchup rating of 159. Both of Rodon's PQS Disaster Zero starts have been on the road. In his three home starts, he has two PQS 5s and a PQS 4. But he's been allowing too many base runners. In his small sample of 44 major league innings pitched, he's given out 25 free passes while suffering from a 36% hit rate for a whip of 155. His first pitch strike rate of 51% says not to look for increasing control from the 22-year-old left-hander, but his 43 strikeouts in those 44 innings and a ground ball rate of 45% have helped him keep his ERA below his expected ERA of 419. Comparing teams, Texas has the second-best road record in Major League Baseball at 21-14, while the White Sox are only 16-13 and 13 at home. Worse than that, the Chicagoans are only 17-29 and 29 versus teams at or above 500, like Texas. The Sox rank 29th in run production and allow a run more a game than they score. The Rangers rank 2nd in run production and allow about a third of a run less per game than they score. Just because Rodon's is the highest matchup rating of the day doesn't mean you have to go with it. Stay away from both Rodon and Martinez in this one. The second best matchup rating on Saturday is 266, and it belongs to Seattle's Taiwan Walker. His Mariners are at home hosting Houston in pitcher-friendly Safeco Field. Who do the Astros send up to the Space Needle? Dallas Keuchel and his matchup rating of 183. A month ago, BaseballHQ.com starting pitcher analyst Stephen Nickran advised, sell high on Keuchel. 
even an elite ground ball rate of 64%, couldn't completely protect him from the regression coming to his hit rate of 20% and strand rate of 84% at that time. Sure enough, the hit rate has gone up to 24% and the strand rate has fallen to 76%. Still, Keuchel's calling card is control, and he's walked only 26 batters in 101 innings pitched, supported by a fine first pitch K rate of 63%. In 14 starts, Keuchel has put up 10 PQS dominant outings and no PQS disasters, including 5 PQS dominant starts in his past 6 efforts. Walker seems to be putting it all together at age 22 right before our very eyes. Not only has BaseballHQ.com's Stephen Nickran noticed, but subscribers will see that BaseballHQ.com analyst Matt Gelfand agrees in a soon-to-be-published Facts and Flukes article. Walker is working on four consecutive PQS dominant starts, and at home, he has an elite BPV of 130. But the M's are only 14 and 19 at home, good for 26th in the majors. The Astros are 16 and 14 on the road, ranking 7th. Against teams under 500 like Seattle, Houston ranks 6th with a record of 22 and 12. Against teams at or over 500 like Houston, Seattle ranks 25th at 19 and 28. Versus right-handed starting pitchers, the Astros are 25 and 14, third in the majors. Versus left-handed starters, the M's are 6 and 7, ranking 23rd. In other words, Walker is the better pitcher, and Keuchel is on the better team. So you can take either starter in this one. Turning to the National League on Sunday, the New York Mets' Matt Harvey brings his matchup rating of 150 into Atlanta, where Julio Tehran defends his neutral home ground in Turner Field with a matchup rating of 276. The Mets are only 10-20 and 20 on the road, ranking 27th, but they are feasting on teams under 500 like the Braves, posting the fourth best record in majors at 25-13. and 13. And the Braves are struggling versus teams that are above 500, like the Mets, ranking 23rd with a record of 11 and 19. Harvey started the season with eight straight PQS dominant outings, but then stumbled a bit, suffering through two PQS disasters, punctuated by 14 earned runs in those 10 innings, and an eight home run stretch of four games. Despite that blip, he still has an expected ERA of 302, a command rate of 63 based on a DOM rate of 9-1 and a control rate of 1-5, for an elite base performance value of 146. Tehran has been more erratic, never posting more than two PQS dominant starts in succession and achieving only four in his past 12 starts after beginning the year with a pair. He has not allowed fewer than three earned runs in five starts since May 26. Stay away from Tehran and hang with Harvey. This weekend, watch out for Rodon, Martinez, and Tehran. Go with Walker and Keuchel, and make Harvey your best friend for Father's Day. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm up in the rotation this week, and I want to talk about how we need to stop looking for the big W. You can't miss it. A big I've never liked the wins category, but lately I'm really getting to hate it because looking for the big W really has become a mad, 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 mad world. Take June 15th, please. I was scrambling to stay near the top of the wins category in Tout Wars, and like Roto players everywhere, I was looking for the big W. I was feeling pretty good about Mark Burley's start at City Field against the Mets. 
Burley was coming into the game on a nice little run for me. In his last three starts, he'd notched two straight complete game wins, one of them a shutout, and a six-inning start that he left the game tied at two. His ERA for the period, 225, and he had allowed just 22 base runners in 24 innings. Adding to this generally positive vibe, the Jays were on a redonkulous 10-game win streak, and they'd been scoring runs like Steph Curry was bombing threes for them, 88 runs in the last 10 games. The Mets? Okay, yeah, they were at the top of the National League East, but the National League East is somewhat short of a murderer's row. As of Monday, with the Mets leading, the Nationals were second, and I think the Taney Dragons were third. Monet Davis had back-to-back PQS fives against Philadelphia and Atlanta. And while the Jays had won their last ten, the Mets were just 5-5 five and five in theirs, a stretch that included series against the sub-500 Diamondbacks and the even subber-500 Braves. Further, New York was starting Noah Syndergaard. Now, he had opened his rookie season pretty well since his call-up, but over his last two games had soiled the linens, pitching just 10 total innings, allowing 21 base runners and 11 earned runs. Against the bashing Blue Jays, I wondered if MLB might institute a mercy rule of the kind they use in church league softball and badly need at the Women's Soccer World Cup. Now, I know what you're thinking. Syndergaard had displayed some useful skills, and so according to Baseball HQ's rules, he owns those skills. Plus, on any given day, any given pitcher, blah, blah, blah. But actually, Cindergard was my ace in the hole. If he rebounded and had a good game, I had him on my tout team too. And so I thought with both ends covered, I had a great chance of finding the big W. And indeed, Cindergard pitched really well, at least as well as Beerley. Cindergard had 11 strikeouts and gave up just two hits and two walks in six innings. But one of the hits was a homer by Jose Bautista, and Syndergaard was losing one to nothing. But of course, here's the beauty of my plan. Syndergaard being down meant that Burley was up and in a position for the win. I'm sure you know where this is going, but bear with me. In the bottom of the sixth, Burley got the first hitter, Kevin Ploiecki, to ground out to Jose Reyes at short. Ploiecki is a 225-pound catcher, not exactly Billy Hamilton when it comes to legging it down to first. Reyes could have sent the ball to first by Courier, And as it turns out, he should have. Instead, he made a throwing error to put Ploiecki on first with nobody out. Now you have Ploiecki on, Syndergaard due up, and a one-run deficit. But Mets manager Terry Collins seemed to play right into my hands. First, he left the 225-pound catcher in to run the bases. And second, he didn't take Syndergaard out of the game, though Syndergaard had thrown more than 100 pitches, and there was no way he was going to pitch the seventh. It couldn't work, right? I'm sure you know where this is going, but bear with me. Collins' seemingly maladroit decision worked. Syndergaard successfully bunted Ploiecki to second, after which Burley gave up back-to-back doubles to fall behind 2-1. Plan A was seriously in trouble, but now Plan B was working. With Burley now trailing, Syndergaard, who had stayed in the game, was in the lead, and so he was now in position for the big W. The Mets clung to Syndergaard's 2-1 lead until the ninth, when they turned the ball over to closer Juris Familia. The big W was in the bag, right? I'm sure you know where this is going, but bear with me. Familia attacked the strike zone, starting with his very first pitch to Jose Bautista. Now, attacking the strike zone might not be the best idea for Familia, as his OPS against on first pitches is 892 for his career and 2200 this season. Remarkably, both of the home runs Familia had allowed this season had come on first pitches. 
Well, Bautista made it three for three, lining Familia's first pitch more than 400 feet into the second deck and left. Familia hadn't surrendered a home run to a right-handed hitter since April. And of course, as the ball crashed into one of the many empty seats, my plan B crashed with it. There would be no big W for Syndergaard, nor for Burley, nor, most importantly, for me. This is why I hate the wins category. I benefited a little bit in ERA and WHIP from the combined efforts of Burley and Syndergaard, who pitched very well. In fact, they pitched well enough to win, as the saying goes. But of course, neither of them got the win, because the win is a crapshoot. It's a blind dart throw. And in seeming defiance of the spirit of fantasy baseball, the win is only tenuously tied to anything like talent or performance. And this is not an isolated incident. Every fantasy owner has a horror story to tell. Last year, 73 different times, a starter threw six innings or less, gave up four runs or more, and still got a win. 73 times. Also last year, on 57 different occasions, there were pitchers who threw eight innings or more, gave up one earned run or less, and didn't get the big W. Getting a win is about as fair a measure of skills for pitchers as the Grammy Award turned out to be a measure of singing skill for Millie Vanilli. I understand that wins provide an element of unpredictability in our game, and the game needs unpredictability to be fun. Otherwise, we could all draft our teams, compare the players' highly predictable advanced metrics, and declare the league winner about 10 minutes after the draft was over. Hey, somebody splash you who on gym. Let's start planning for football. No, unpredictability is good. It forces us to respond to the game on the field, to manage our way through the unpredictable, like injuries, to manage our way through the inexplicable, like official scorers awarding base hits on infield boots and dropped flyballs. It requires us to manage through the bizarre, like managerial decisions by Terry Collins. And pitcher wins? They're all three. Unpredictable, inexplicable, and sometimes bizarre. Now maybe looking at the unfortunate twists and turns and the maddening outcomes of a Mets-Blue Jays game on a Monday night in mid-June shouldn't be enough to disqualify wins as a category. I don't know that for sure, but I still hate them. And what's more, I think owners and leagues are starting to agree with this position. Lots of leagues have at least discussed going to a category that is perhaps a little less luck-based than wins. But that will be a topic for my next edition of Master Notes. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. Why, that's it! Sure! Look! It's a big W, I tell you! It's a big W! You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio on Friday every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 19th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 35 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular guest for the Friday edition of our show, Todd Zola. I always enjoy our weekly talk with Todd, and I hope you like it as much as I do. I also want to thank our other contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. 
You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, and be among the first to know when a new show is ready for download. And don't forget, you can contact us by email at bhqradio at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you with your suggestions, comments, and questions. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday when our expert guest will be Ask Rotoman expert and Tout Wars Commissioner Peter Kreutzer. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.